And we may pitch our tent in Luke for a while over the coming months. Um, I've been grazing at myself and enjoying it. And I want to take us as a church just to a season of just gazing at Jesus. Um, and that will obviously then involve spending time in the Gospels. And uh, I, I think then I, I could well be living the dream because on a Sunday morning I'll be, doing, I'll be going through Luke and looking at Jesus. On a Sunday night with some of the young people that have been coming in from Table Fridays, we're going through John and we're looking at Jesus. And that's class. Um, so Luke chapter 1, we're in Advent. I'm going to, over the next couple of weeks, probably just mosey around in the first couple of chapters of Luke and pull out a few characters and, and look at what happened to them in the, these accounts of the, the birth of Jesus and what happened around it. Uh, Luke chapter 1, today we're looking at a guy called Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. I want to read from verse 5. Um, I don't think I'll be going out of Luke 1, so if you have a Bible or a phone in and you want to just picture ten to Luke one and and stay there. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children. Because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Standing at the right side of the altar of incense, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel, quite a name drop. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. This is actually, I think this is meant to be funny, so don't feel bad if you find a wee whimper of a laugh rising up within you. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. 
After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and has taken away my disgrace among the people. We'll read a wee bit more later in the chapter as we go on. Herod that we read about at the start of this passage is called Herod the Great. That's what he was known as. Yeah, quite the name for, to take on for yourself. Herod the Great. Um, and in the days of Herod the Great, we meet Zechariah the Nobody. Now, you, you can read this and sometimes think that, well, Zechariah was a priest and therefore he must have been a big shot. There were 18,000 priests. Okay, so he was not a big shot. He was just a regular dude. He probably, he, in fact, he did live in the hills outside Jerusalem. And he probably effectively pastored a synagogue or led a synagogue of maybe a couple of dozen people. And he just, you know, he, he just served there faithfully. And then the way it worked was twice a year for one week, you would get to go to Jerusalem and be part of the official temple duty in Jerusalem. And if you were real lucky while you were there, they basically rolled the dice. And if it fell for you, you got to go into the temple and offer incense. But you could go through your whole life without that actually happening. So Zechariah is just a regular dude uh, living outside Jerusalem, serving faithfully. He is not some great sort of superhero. And him and his wife Elizabeth are described in verse 6 as being righteous in God's sight. That does not mean they were stone-hearted, cold rule keepers. It meant they loved God. And out of their love of God overflowed a life of righteousness. They were righteous in God's sight. They were regular, ordinary people. And they were devoted to God. And God uses regular, ordinary people who are devoted to him. He cares a little for Herod the Great. In fact, a different Herod a bit later on in the Gospel is wonderfully referred to by Jesus as a fox. Like that. And they do not have children. And they're getting old. And I want to make it clear to you that their lack of children was not due to any sin on their part. It was not due to anything they had done or failed to do. We are clearly told they are righteous in the sight of God. But one of the things that Luke is doing here is he's setting you up. Because he assumes that you've read the Old Testament. And he assumes that you know that in the Old Testament there were couples who did not have children. There was Abraham and Sarah who did not have children. And there was a there was a Shunammite woman, and there was Manoah, the father of Samson and his wife, who's not named. And there was Hannah and Elkanah, the, the mother and father of Samuel, Jacob and Rachel. Rachel wasn't able to have children initially, and then she did have children to Jacob. But one of the things that the writer's doing here is he's sort of whipping up a wee bit of a frenzy of anticipation. Whenever you read your Bible and you see a couple who are unable to have children and there's a child coming, you know something big is happening. Something big is going to happen. We're going to get a Samson or a Samuel or an Isaac. We're going to get something big. In verses 8 to 10, Zechariah goes up to do his duty in the temple. And while he is there, the dice is thrown the lot is cast, and it's his lucky day. All right, this is the big moment. Zechariah, maybe for decades, has been going up to the temple every year to do a shift, just as duties around the temple. But suddenly, the lot falls on him. 
Folks, in verse 8, duty is not a bad thing. Sometimes as we just go about our duty and just go about our lives, that's where God can extraordinarily show up. When we're just faithful, getting on with stuff. Right? The door can open and God can show up. And Zechariah now is told by whoever casts the lot, Zechariah, today it's you. You've been waiting for this all your life. Today it's you. You're going to go in there, into the holy place. Nobody else will be there, just you. You're going to get to burn some incense. All of the worshippers are outside. Picture the scene, okay? Whatever the temple looks like in your mind, you picture it. And outside, all the worshippers are on their knees. This great moment that the priest gets to go in. And, and all you have to do, Zachariah, just it's pretty simple, just burn some incense, say a prayer, come back out and pray over the people and bless them and send them home. That's it. How hard can it be? That's it. And the people are on their knees and they're waiting and Zachariah goes in. And when he goes in, he gets to the altar. He meets somebody at the altar, throws the incense on the fire and he prays a bit. And then when he opens his eyes, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him mischievous these angels of the Lord that keep appearing in the in the, the Christmas nativity narratives you know, <coughs> just standing there what I wonder I shouldn't wonder but I just wonder do the angels have a wee sense of humour you know was Gabriel standing there just for a few minutes while Zach had the eyes closed just waiting until he opens his eyes he's going to get some shock <laughs> and then Zachariah looks at him and he's there and he's just terrified because nobody else comes in. Zachariah knows this is not a man. Something, something major is taking place here. And the first thing that the angel says to him is, don't be afraid. I'm going to tell you something about the presence of God. It dispels fear. The presence of God dispels fear. It's not that there's nothing to be afraid of. There are always plenty of things in life to be afraid of. But the presence of God takes away fear. Mm -hmm. Those things are still there, but you're not afraid of them anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like a child who wants to go upstairs and doesn't want to go up on their own because it's dark upstairs. Whatever they're afraid of upstairs, whenever somebody goes with them, they're not afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah? And in the presence of God, fear goes. And the angel says to him, Zachariah, today... Your prayer has been heard. Right? We read that Zachariah was old. I don't know how long he'd been praying this prayer. What have you stopped praying for? What did you pray for for years and then you just, I know it's something, you just get weary of it. Zachariah kept praying and in this moment, he probably, I don't know whether he, sh what, what the etiquette was, or what he should have been praying for, but it's almost as if at that moment when he got his opportunity, he just thought, I'm going to shoot up a wee prayer for myself and the wife while I'm here. You know, I'm in the presence of God and, uh, and I'm just going to, just a wee sneaky, quick, quick two-second prayer, Lord, please give us a child. And he does that. And Gabriel says, today, your prayer has been answered. You're going to have a child and, and, and he's told to call the child John. Now, John means God is gracious. And Zachariah and Elizabeth should not have called the child John. They should have called the child Zachariah. That was what you did. You named children after their father or after a, a male, for a boy, after a male relative. 
Um, but the angel says, no, John is the name. I'm going to tell you, folks, something that God does for you. He gives you a new name. Now, in the West, in the culture that we live in, not many of us are going to actually change our name from what we were given by our parents. You will get that in other places. You, you sometimes encounter people from African nations you know, with names like goodness you know, or mercy. Did your mother call you that? No, I changed my name when I encountered Jesus. God gives us a new name because in the Bible, your name really speaks about two things. It speaks about your character and it speaks about your destiny. And whenever we encounter Jesus, whenever we come to God, he gives us a new character by the power of the Holy Spirit and he gives us a new destiny, a new future. We're no longer governed by the things that happened in the past, but he has given us a new future. In Genesis, when he encounters Abram, whose name means father, God changes his name to father of many nations. He gives Abraham a new destiny for his future. Whenever he encounters Jacob, God changes Jacob's name, which means basically con man, and changes his name to Israel, which means prince with God. Whenever Jesus encounters Simon, whose name means a reed, something that's blown around and is not stable, Jesus says, you're Peter, which means a rock, something that cannot be moved. This is what God does to us when we come to him. He gives us a new name a new future, a new destiny. I love whenever Jesus calls the twelve in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Don't go to it. But he calls the twelve, and it says he designated them, or he called them, or he told them they were apostles. They were not apostles. They were rough-talking fishermen. They would have fitted right in here on Friday night. They would have been right home with, with the general tongue of what's going on. They were a bunch of rough, rough fellas, rough as can be. Some of them would have hated each other before they came together in the 12th, just because of their backgrounds. They, they literally would have hated each other, and they would have shown up and said, I can't believe he's here. I cannot believe he is part of this group. How can, how can this actually be happening? But he, you know, the point is, he gave them a name. He said, you're apostles. He saw their future, and he spoke it into them. And he does that with us. And we need to do that with each other as well. And we need to do it with other people. We need to do it with, with, with young people. Again, I was profoundly affected by Friday night. But like, what name do we speak over the like of those kids? What names get spoken over them day and daily by other people? Maybe by friends, maybe even by relatives, maybe by teachers. What, what names get spoken over them? And what, what will we speak into them? What new name will we give to them? What, what you know, will we present Jesus to them? So the name is to be John. And then in verse 15, there's a wonderful we play. Remember at the start, I told you that this guy, Herod, was known as Herod the Great. And in verse 15, the start of the verse, we read verse 14, he will be a joy and delight to you, as all children are. I don't mean that with the slightest bit of sarcasm. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great. Not Herod the Great. John will be great. 
The Greek word is a lovely word. Do you remember it from the last time I told you the Greek word for great? Mega. Yeah, that's the word. He will be mega. Mega. And the appearance of these two men, if you contrast John when he arrives and when he grows up with Herod. Herod lived in wealth, luxury, opulence. <coughs> he had friends in high places. He had everything money could buy. He dressed in the finest of gear and he ate the finest of food. John dressed in camel skins and ate locusts dipped in honey. Total contrast. And the world and culture would have looked to someone like Herod and said, wow, what a great one he is. And God just totally bypasses them and says, no, this is greatness. This is true greatness. I wonder what God thinks of people who are regarded as great in the eyes of culture. What does he think of the politicians jockeying for attention on TV? Is there anyone out there who thinks they're great? I doubt it. I was really affected a few weeks ago when David Blevins was here and Sarah asked him at the start about what famous people had he met when he was interviewing for Sky News, you know, what famous people, and, he, and he, he listed off a few presidents that he had interviewed and a few other, a few prime ministers as well, I think, and a couple other people that he had interviewed. But then he said the one that had the greatest impact on him was Gordon Wilson, whose daughter was killed in the Enniskillen bomb. I thought, that's something, isn't it? All, all these great ones that David has met and interviewed, but the person that left the, the profound effect on him was this tremendous man of forgiveness and grace. God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance, not the car, not the money. He looks at the heart. Whenever men tried to build a tower in Genesis, they, they said, at a place called Babel, they said, we're going to build a tower all the way to heaven and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God just knocks the tower over and scatters it all. And then he calls Abraham in the next chapter and says, I will make your name great. I'll give you a name. I'll give you a reputation. Don't try to do it for yourself. Also in verse 15, do we need the heat back on, ladies? Does anybody give me a nod for me to heat back on? Do we do need it back on? We've got one here, so anybody need it back on? Yeah. Um, also in verse 15, another thing, he, he will be great. Just, just to make a point, he, he's never to take wine or other fermented drink. That's because John the Baptist was taking a particular vow called the Nazarite vow, which you can read about in Numbers. It is not a blanket condemning of wine in moderation. That's not what he is saying. In verse 15, he also says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. I think early in the new year, I want to do a short series on the Holy Spirit. But Luke emphasizes the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel writer, both in Luke and in Acts, which Luke also wrote. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Two things I want to point out about that. God's Holy Spirit has never filled anyone like this before. In the Old Testament, you will read about the Holy Spirit coming upon people. The Holy Spirit came upon Samson, and he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. But that, that's what you read. It, 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 is, it is not an indwelling and a long-term residing within someone. It is the Holy Spirit empowers them, and they do something. This is new. This is indicating a new age in the Spirit is coming. God's Spirit is going to fill him. 
And not only is God's Spirit going to fill him, but the second thing in this verse is to point out the fact that God's Spirit only fills people. Right? He's not filled anything else other than people. So what was in Elizabeth's womb was a person. Okay? A person. Not a bunch of cells. Not, you know, some scientific words. See the word fetus? I don't like the word fetus. There's something cold about it. There's something that is not, just doesn't seem to have the grace of life associated with it. Child, okay? Child in the womb. And, and God's Spirit fills people. So there was a person in Elizabeth's womb to be filled by the Spirit. There was not a, a lifeless bunch of cells. There was a person. A real person, a human being, a life. In fact, the Greek word that is used, when you read on in chapter 1, it says the child or the baby leapt in her womb. Whenever Elizabeth and Mary get together, John the Baptist starts, you know, kicking about and going crazy in mama's womb. The word there for the child or the baby leapt in the womb is exactly the same word in Luke 18 for the children that came to Jesus and were blessed by him. No difference. In the womb, outside the womb, child. Human being, life, not to be tampered with. Now, Zechariah drops the ball in verse 18. We've all dropped the ball from time to time. <coughs> He's in Jerusalem. The lot has fallen for him to be the one to go into the holy place. He has prayed and an angel has appeared. The angel knew what he was praying about and told him his prayer would be answered. There's a whole lot of stuff that's sort of working together here that for most of us you would think that would be good enough. Okay? Enough good things have happened to make me realize that this is actually God doing this. But Zachariah says to the angel, how can I be sure of this? No! <laughs> no! You've got everything you need to be sure can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years and I can imagine the angel's face changing. I am Gabriel, Zachariah. Do you know the one you read about in Daniel from like, what, 700 years ago? I'm him. <laughs> and I've just appeared and I've told you all this and for some reason, you don't buy it. Yeah, Gabriel, I'd see him with that, you know, that, that monkey emoji with that, the hands over the face. <laughs> what? You know, God, is there no one smarter that you could have sent me to today <laughs> to achieve this purpose? I'm Gabriel. And Zechariah asks, basically, he wants a sign. How can I be sure of this? And when you read about this, you have to think back to Gideon. It was another nutcase in terms of, of all the stuff that he saw. He saw an angel and he saw food and the rock bursting into flames and all this stuff. And then he says, could I have a sign, please? <laughs> no, Gideon, you don't need a sign. You've got enough. And then once he gets a sign, he wants another sign. Now, Zachariah then ends up being struck silent for the duration of the pregnancy. You want to sign? Okay, take this. And have you ever placed, have you ever sort of in your mind reviewed a conversation that you've had and wished you'd had it differently? For I'm sure for nine months, Zacharias thinking, why did I say that? Because now I can't speak. And you as you read a wee bit later on, you find out that he can't hear either. 
he's having to make signs to people and they're having to make signs to him. And I'm sure he's thinking back for nine months over that conversation. Why did I do that? <laughs> Why did I do that? The problem with Zachariah is, and this is important and this is serious, he doesn't talk at this point, he doesn't talk the vocabulary of faith. He talks the vocabulary of doubt. The angel of the Lord has shown up and says, this is the way it's going to be. And Zachariah's response is, oh, really? How can that happen? Look at me. I'm old. She's old. Come on. It looks dangerous to talk the, the vocabulary of doubt when God is speaking. It's dangerous. We need an environment of faith where we talk faith. Not where we make stuff up and just go around with giddy optimism, but where we talk faith and we believe what God wants us to do and don't just dwell on all the things that maybe may have looked like it can't happen. Meanwhile, outside the temple, the people in verse 21 were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Convinced Luke is smiling as he writes this. You know, they're on their knees on hard ground outside the temple. <coughs> Zechariah was meant to go in, chuck the incense on the fire, pray and come back out, bless them and everybody goes home. But they're still there. You know, <laughs> where is he? What has happened to him? Is he ever going to come out? My knees are getting sore. I want to go home. I have things to do. And then Zechariah comes out and they're all like, yes, he's, he's done. He's going to pray for us and he's going to bless us. And they're going home. But he can't talk. <laughs> Can you picture it? He comes out of the out of the temple and the crowd are all there. And he can't speak. And Luke is laughing his head off as he says in verse 22, when he came out he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision because he kept making signs to them. Now something to practice at home this afternoon. Get together in pairs and try to communicate to one another that you've just seen a vision of an angel. And the angel has told you that your wife is going to get pregnant. You know, can you imagine the comedy of this scene as Zacharias trying to communicate this to? And they realize that something has happened in the temple and they disperse somehow. He goes home, verse 24, Elizabeth gets pregnant. Spends five months rubbing her tummy and thanking God for a husband that can't talk. <laughs> Nine months of winning every discussion. <laughs> yeah. And in verse 25 she says a beautiful thing because in those days and in that context for her to not have children was a thing of disgrace and shame. And people would have heaped shame and disgrace upon her. And she says, the Lord has done this. He has taken away my disgrace. You know, what, what shame hangs over people? Some of us have done things that we are ashamed of and there is a shame hanging over us because of what we have done. And some of us have had things done to us by others and there's a shame hanging over us because of that. Let me tell you about the Lord who takes away shame. Takes away the disgrace that society loves to label people, you're this and you're that, just loves to suss you out and then put you in a little box and say, ah, you fit in that category there because of what has happened to you or because of what you have done. And then shame starts to hang on you. The Lord takes away shame. 
So John is born in between. We've got the story of Mary. But when you go to verses 57 to 66, John is born. Why did Zechariah have to be quiet for nine months? There was an element of judgment to it for his lack of faith. But there's also a, is a tremendous, tremendous sign of what God <coughs> is doing. You see, for about 400 years, there has been silence in Israel. There has been no prophet. There has been no word of God. Nothing for 400 years. And Zechariah, I think, during the pregnancy, is becoming like a symbol for Israel. Silence. Silence. And then, whenever John is born, in verse 62, they made signs to find out what he should be called. They wanted to call him Zechariah, a crowd of people that had come to visit him. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote John. And on the blackboard, he wrote John, and he held it up. And as soon as he held it up, his tongue was released. And he started to praise God. Zechariah's silence and then his speaking are a sign of what God is about to do. I've been silent for a long time, but I'm about to speak again. My word is about to go forth. And we know from John's Gospel about the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. After all the silence, there's now going to be an outbreak of the word of God. Sudden, unexpected, after four centuries, he is on the move again. His kingdom is breaking in. And you always know the kingdom of God is near because you hear the voice of God again. The voice of God speaking. And Zechariah's silence and sudden speaking is a sign to the nation of what is about to happen. The kingdom is coming. The silence is over. The prophetic voice is speaking again. And people are hearing it. And finally, Zechariah writes a song. Christmas songs, eh? We all have our favourites, and we all have the ones we despise. Wham! On the, on the naughty list for Wham! and last Christmas. Please, no. No, 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 no. There are others, but I'll not offend you by ruining your favourite Christmas song. There are songs here in Luke chapter 1. Mary has a song and Zechariah has a song. You know the kingdom of God is near and you know God is on the move when his people sing and when they write new songs. I can tell you historically every move of God is accompanied with new songs. Not an abandoning of the old songs but new songs. So many songs that we have sang and that have been about the church for maybe a few hundred years, they're there because the Wesleys wrote them during the Great Awakening. And we're still singing. New songs were written when God does a new thing. And Zechariah writes a song. And again, in verse 67, as I mentioned earlier, there is the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and he prophesies. Just Notice this this morning as I was thinking over this. The silence was not ended with John the Baptist prophesying. The silence was ended with Zechariah prophesying. Zechariah stayed silent and then Zechariah spoke. 
And the song that he sings, I just want to pick out two points from. One is a song of redemption and rescue. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. Redemption is being bought out of slavery at a high price. It is being released from enemies and captors that are too strong for us to release ourselves. It is a debt that we cannot pay. That's redemption. And Zechariah sings of a God who has redeemed his people in verse 68. In verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, rescuing us from the hand of our enemies. This song that, that Zechariah sings about God, he sings about God the rescuer, God the redeemer. God's heart is for the oppressed, the broken, the downtrodden, the overlooked, the underdog, not the heroin. His heart is for those who cannot free themselves, who cannot redeem themselves. And the world, frankly, is full of bullies. Sounds like funny words. There is a schoolyard word. The world is full of bullies. Many have experienced bullying at some stage in their life. Maybe as a child, I left BB because I was bullied. Thankfully, I went back again a couple of years later and loved it. But I still can picture the guy. You know? Many of us have had an experience at some stage where people, some people bully physically by throwing their weight around. Some people bully verbally by throwing their intellect around. Some people bully emotionally. Husbands can be bullies. Wives can be bullies. Parents can be bullies. Jack Russells can be bullies. I've <laughs> <laughs> been dealing with this for a long time. Bullied by Jack Russell. <laughs> Drug dealers are bullies. Pimps are bullies. The world is full of bullies just press people down. And Zachariah sings of a God who's come to redeem and rescue those downtrodden people. There's something wonderful when a bully finally gets it, isn't there? You know, if, uh, if you knew anyone who worked in an educational context, um, from time to time, the bully gets it. <laughs> and part of you is thinking, well, we're going to have to deploy the code of conduct against the person who caused the bully to get it. But we should then frame a picture of them and put it up in the assembly hall as an example for all the other children to look to. Because we love it when the bully gets it. Boy, there was a new story from India this week where bullies got it. Boy, they got it bad. They really got it bad. But did they have it coming? We love it when the bully gets it. We love it when the politician, the prince, or the movie producer who has been harassing people for years finally gets exposed. The bully gets it. We love that the sense of justice. Those new stories in India. I was just reading about the ministry, and literally in the local villages, people are out dancing in the street when they heard about the bullies having been dealt with. And Zachariah sings, "God's going to deal with the bullies, and He's going to rescue His people." We sing songs of redemption at Christmas. You know, the ultimate bully is Satan. He uses sin. He is behind every other bully, and we cannot deal with sin by ourselves. We need a redeemer. We need a redeemer. Someone stronger and more powerful than us. 
So it is a song of rescue and redemption. It is also a song of faithfulness. This song is saturated with Old Testament scriptures. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, you cannot have Jesus without the Old Testament. No. You just can't. You cannot understand Jesus without understanding him in the story of Israel. You can't get it. You just can't get it. In verse 76, uh, as Zechariah sings, he's pulling from Isaiah 40. In verse 77, he's still pulling from Isaiah 40. In verse 78, he's pulling from Numbers 24. And in verse 79, he's pulling from Isaiah 9. It's just saturated with Scripture. Saturated. It is a song about the faithfulness of God. The things that he promised in the past, he is going to fulfill. He's going to finish what he started. He's going to bring to perfection that which he has begun. Two things to note as we close. One, and I think this is beautiful, and I've never really noticed it before. Luke holds a couple of things together here as he writes this. Because he is talking on a massive scale about what God is doing. God is putting into place the birth of John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner to Jesus, who will redeem people from their sins. This is the greatest moment of all history. God is putting the pieces in place after 400 years of silence, after centuries and centuries of promises, he is now putting everything in place. What is happening here is massive in scope. It is cosmic, it is universal, it is huge. But woven into that story of the ages that God is bringing together on a massive scale, woven into that story are the personal hopes and fears of two ordinary people called Zachariah and Elizabeth, who have been faithful all their lives, who are desperate for a child, who are struggling with faith and doubt, and are called to trust God at this new moment in history. And I think the weaving together of the two is absolutely majestic. From the massive cosmic universal putting things in place for the birth of Jesus eventually, to just these two ordinary people who've been living with brokenness and hurt all their lives, all their lives, and God's going to use them. He didn't go and pick Miss Jerusalem and Mr. Galilee, you know, the two CrossFit champions of, of, of the first century. Young and fit and healthy, and said, The two of you look good, you do, well, you know, once you have a child, I'll take. No, 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 no. He picks these people who are righteous and who are broken and who are hungry to see his glory. Love that, that ability that God has to just work on those different levels. And the last thing I want, I want to point out is in Zechariah's song, he only mentions John very briefly. Some of us, we long for things. And when we get them, they can become an idol to us. That happened with Gideon. Getting all the plunder from the Midianites and he being fashioned out of the gold, he fashioned an ephod out of the gold, and then the people started to worship the gold. <coughs> Zechariah and Elizabeth were given their heart's desire, but their focus was then fully on God and on Jesus, not on John. He's mentioned in verse 76, You, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and then amazingly he starts working towards Jesus. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. You're going to give his people the knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, 
by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. The rising sun is Jesus. That's, he's lifting from Malachi with that illustration, that picture of the sun. It's, it, you know, Wesley then picks for, from it in heart the herald angels sing, but risen with healing in his wings. The rising sun is Jesus. He's the one who will shine on those living in darkness and under the shadow of death. And I tell you, those kids that are in here on Friday night are living under darkness and the shadow of death. They need the light. They need the rising sun. And the whole thing points to Jesus. Zechariah lifts all of these things from the Old Testament. He alludes to all of these promises and he points them all in the direction of Jesus. And I want to finish just by reading something that I have adapted from a guy called Rich Nathan, who is a really excellent teacher in the Vineyard Church in the United States. He says, Jesus is Noah's Ark that saved people from destruction. Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket that God supplied in place of Isaac. Jesus is the patriarch Joseph, loved by his father, rejected by his brothers, sold to the Gentiles, unfairly punished, but eventually becoming the right-hand man of the king who accomplished the salvation of many people. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is Samson standing between the pillars with his arms outstretched. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Jesus is David slaying the bear, the lion, the giant, and anything else that would dare to come against the people of God. Jesus is Jonah in the depths for three days, but raised again. Jesus is Amos, the prophet, warning us about coming judgment. Jesus is Jeremiah, weeping over the nation as he sees that judgment coming. Jesus is Ezekiel, prophesying the temple's destruction. Jesus is Isaiah, preaching comfort and good news to those in captivity. Jesus is David's Lord in the Psalms. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the day of atonement and the Sabbath rest. Jesus is the new exodus and the end of exile. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the mighty God of Isaiah 9. It is all about Jesus. Oh, church, get obsessed with him. If you're not obsessed with him, get obsessed with him. It's all about him. And Zechariah realizes that as he sings this song, that all the promises of God are being brought to fulfillment. Lord, we love you. We exalt you and we thank you for your amazing faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you have come. The rising sun, the sun did rise and shine still upon those sitting in darkness and under the shadow of death. And Lord, I ask that you would encourage this people this morning, Father. I ask God that you would bless every single one. I ask, Lord, that Jesus would be massive in their hearts and minds this day and this week. Lord, we love you and we want to see your church built. We want to see this town come out from under the darkness, Lord, and into the light, Father. Thank you for this little story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Teach us from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.